Turn with me, please, to the 23rd chapter, the Gospel of Matthew. Our text will be taken from verses 39 through 36, although I will be I will begin reading at verse verse 29 and read through the end of the chapter. Contextually, only a few days away from the cross and the Lord Jesus Christ pronounces eight woes, denunciations against the scribes, the Pharisees, hypocrites as he has revealed clearly concerning their character in this chapter soon he will depart the temple that will be more than simply a physical departure the temple will be left desolate the city will be desolated the 24th chapter then which we term the Olivet Discourse of the Lord Jesus Christ as he and his disciples would make their way to Mount Olivet. He would give forth the solemn truth of the coming destruction of Jerusalem. In 70 AD, also at the same time, and there are sometimes difficulties in dividing exactly where he's talking about the destruction of Jerusalem and the coming consummation at the very end of this age and sometimes they're blended together the one foreshadows the other and so we'll deal with that when we get there but we're getting close to the time when the Lord Jesus Christ will be delivered up close to the cross just a few days away but we read in verses 29 verse 29 and reading through the end of this chapter Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because ye build the tombs of the prophets and garnish the sepulchres of the righteous, and say, If we had been in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partakers with them in the blood of the prophets. Wherefore ye be witnesses unto yourselves, that ye are the children of them which killed the prophets. Fill ye up then the measure of your fathers. Ye serpents, ye generation of vipers, how can ye escape the damnation of hell? Hell there is Gehenna. It is the place of eternal torment. Wherefore, behold, I send unto you prophets and wise men and scribes, and some of them, Ye shall kill and crucify. And some of them shall ye scourge in your synagogues and persecute them from city to city. That upon you may come all the righteous blood shed upon the earth from the blood of righteous Abel all the way back to the garden, all the way back to the slaying of Abel by his brother Cain. Unto the blood of Zacharias, son of Barachias, there is some academic dispute as to who that is speaking of, but that will not fall within the scope of our consideration this morning. Whom you slew between the temple and the altar. Verily I say unto you, all these things shall come upon this generation. 
O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets and stonest them that are sent unto thee, how often would I have gathered thy children together, even as a hen gathereth her chickens under her wings, and ye would not. Behold, your house is left unto you desolate. For I say unto you, ye shall not see me henceforth, till ye shall say, Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. The eighth woe pronounced upon these leaders of the Jewish nation, without doubt, is the most solemn prejudgment announcement ever given. It's what Spurgeon called one of the most terrible sentences that ever fell from Christ's lips. It is a solemn passage to which we affix our attention. These woes expose the hypocrisy of the scribes and the Pharisees. And this last one includes both the judgment that would come before that generation passed, as well as the judgment to come in the eternal punishment of an actual real hell. The judgment that would come upon Jerusalem has been described as more terrible than anything the world has ever witnessed, either before or since. And if you read the history of it, I think you would agree. It's incredible what took place. Matter of fact, even the Roman general Titus, who would lead his army in the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple, even that Roman general had a sense that the avenging hand of a holy God was involved in what he was doing. But again, as terrible as was that judgment, the most solemn judgment yet remained, as the Lord would point out the character of those to whom he was speaking, you serpents, you generation of vipers, how can you escape the damnation of hell? Solemn words. But we have also in this last woe, we have the reason for these judgments. We have perfect divine justice that would bring about these judgments and a justice that cannot be escaped. Yet, too, we shall endeavor to draw application not only to Israel's scribes and Pharisees and those who were led by them, but to every generation, including our own. Scripture is not given simply to be applied only in one particular period of history. Its principles, its truths, its directions are for us all. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness that the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. Glorious light had come to Israel. The most glorious light there is, the light of the world, had come to Israel. And yet, instead of coming to the light 
They hated him. They despised him. Him who was able and they learned from these eight woes to bring out the hidden things of darkness. The prophets of old, as Peter would write in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 11, the prophets of old, quote, spoke by the Spirit of Christ, which was in them. And now, we have the prophet of prophets speaking directly and pointedly to the sons of murderers. The murderers, their fathers had murdered the prophets. He who said at one time, before Abraham was, I am, which caused them eventually to pick up stones against the Lord Jesus. I am is in the perfect present tense. It's not I was. It, he is speaking of himself just as he did at the burning bush. Jehovah incarnate. And they knew it. They knew what he's talking about. So he who said at one time, before Abraham was, I am, for which they tried to kill him, is the eternal Jehovah now incarnated, now come in a body of flesh. It is he who actuated those prophets of old. He of whom they spoke. And their words were prophesied very clearly. And it prophesied of what was taking place through these very scribes, Pharisees, and hypocrites. Just as Paul would later preach in Antioch, in Acts chapter 13, a particular Antioch, they that dwell at Jerusalem and their rulers because they knew him not, nor yet the voices of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath day, they have fulfilled them in condemning him. That's Max 13, verse 27. The prophets of old had exposed the sins of their forefathers. They predicted the judgment that would come to them, the destructive judgment that would be brought upon them. And yet, they did not come to repentance. They were warned over and over. God sent the prophets to them. To call them to repentance. To warn them of impending judgment. But they would not hear. Such as Jeremiah would have to say, To whom shall I speak and give warning that they may hear? Behold, their their ears are uncircumcised that they cannot hear. The word of the Lord is unto them a reproach. They have no delight in it. They rejected the prophets. Killed many of them. Instead of turning to Jehovah from their sins. You see, they would be rid of those who reproved them. but would not rid themselves of the sin which condemned them. 
but killed the prophets. These, to whom the Lord of the prophets now speaks directly in our text, he calls them in verse 17, fools and blind. Fools and blind. You see, because their proud-filled hearts would not hear. And thus, they sealed their own eternal destruction. Fools hate those who are reproved by them. No greater condemnation could come to those confirmed in their sins than to these. For the prophets of old were but a flicker of light compared to the full blaze of glory and glorious light that was now in their presence and exposed them for exactly what they were. As to being sinful fools, our text exhibits that perfectly. The Lord Jesus in this last woe pronounced in Matthew 23 and beginning of verse 29, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you build the tombs of the prophets and garnish the sepulchres of the righteous and say if we'd been in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partakers with them in the blood of the prophets. Wherefore, you be witnesses unto yourselves that ye are the children of them which killed the prophets. You know what we have here? We have an incredible irony here. An incredible irony. While they claim they would not be like their forefathers, what were they doing at that very time? They were plotting the greatest murder the world has ever known at that very time. These, whom the Lord would call serpents, because their spiritual father was the devil, that old serpent, the father of liars, they would certainly carry out his darkest deed. Matter of fact, the Lord Jesus would boldly point out to them at one place in John chapter 8, ye are of your father the devil, and the lust of your father, the desires of your father ye will do. He was a liar from the beginning, and abode not in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own, for he is the liar, and the father of it. And when the Lord Jesus Christ, in the Garden of Gethsemane, a few days away, when he would yield to the wickedness of their designs, he would say to them, this is your hour and the power of darkness. And it all they would accomplish, all they would accomplish Accomplishing in the very purpose of God under the canopy of what we understand fully as divine sovereignty over all things. All they would accomplish without knowing it 
would be to open through the death of Christ the glorious light that would be dispersed throughout all the world. The glorious gospel of the Son of God. They would build monuments to their forefathers. While at the same time, did they not realize that they were monuments to murderers? Their forefathers were the murderers of the prophets. Adding to their incredible irony, they would even pretend a respect for those prophets of old. Prophets who by their writings still called them to repentance. And they would reject the prophet of the prophets. Would have to lament, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets, and stonest them that are sent unto thee, how often would I have gathered thy children together, even as a hen gathereth her chickens under her wings, and you would not. That's next week's, Lord willing, next week's solemn study that will conclude are looking into Matthew 23. If none are so blind, but they who will not see, none are so foolish, but they who will not hear. While they would boast that they, they who actually considered themselves the righteous ones, they would boast. We wouldn't be like our fathers. We wouldn't be like our forefathers who killed the prophets. They did not realize that at the very same time they were saying that they were sons of the murderers. Again, in verses 30 and 31 of Matthew 23. If we had been in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partakers with them in the blood of the prophets. Wherefore, ye be witnesses unto yourselves that ye are the children of them which killed the prophets. The blood of their murdering forefathers ran in their veins. Isaiah could write centuries before in Isaiah chapter 1, verse 4, of, quote, the seed, which means the children, the seed of evildoers. They, as their fathers, being spiritually the seed of the serpent, would not simply inherit the genes of their fathers, but their spiritual condition as well. which is very solemn because we also inherited the condition of our forefathers and our first father Adam. But blessed be God are those to whom he gives a new birth, a new nature. Because we were born after the image of our first father, Adam. 
We inherited the same sin nature. Not only is his sin imputed to us, is ours, but his nature was transmitted to us. We were born sinners into this world. Like it or not, apart from the grace of God, you and I were born capable of lying, cheating, committing adultery, fornication, murder, etc. Hard to take. Apart from the grace of God and the mercy of God in his giving restraints in this world of parents and law and so forth, it's incredible what we would have been capable of. We got it from our first father. We got his nature. We came into the world with the fallen nature of Adam. And only God, again, changes that in giving a new nature, a new life, a new heart. A regeneration, a birth from above. This spiritual birth recreates us. It recreates us into the image of Christ, who is the second, the last Adam. It's his life that's given us. That's an astounding thing. If any man be in Christ, he's a new creature, a new creation. Behold, all things have become new. Old things are passed away. All things become new. And it comes because of what would take place a few days after our text on the cross. The death of Christ. The shedding of his blood in death. In our place. Taking what we deserved. And removing the barrier. Between God and us. And calling us. To look to and trust him. Alone in this. Seeing him by faith. Coming to him. Yeah with a broken and a contrite heart over sin. To believe to trust, to whom we surrender ourselves to belong to him and to be his alone. But the vilest hate ever in the human heart was to kill the Holy One, the one who had no sin, the one who only went about, as Peter would preach later, doing good. Him they would kill. But all at the same time, that death would become the greatest manifestation of the eternal love of God for sinners ever given. God commendeth his love toward us. And while we were yet sinners, Christ 
died for us in our place, taking what we should have by exact justice suffered. But we suffered it in him, in being brought to him. And then in our text, verses 32 and 33 is what brought the comment of Spurgeon. This is one of the most terrible sentences that ever fell from Christ's lips. Fill ye up then the measure of your fathers, ye serpents, ye generation of vipers. How can you escape the damnation of hell? You see, these were filled with the venom of their fathers. They were filled with pride and lust for the praise of men. They hated with cruel hated, hatred. Whatever exposed them for what they really were. As vile, whitewashed hypocrites. And now the height of that vileness. The height of that vileness would be turned against the light with a capital L. The light that came from heaven exposing the darkness that came from hell. The light of heaven exposing the darkness of hell right there. They were children of hell. They could not escape the damnation of hell. They could not escape the horrors of hell. What is horrific, they were confirmed in that condition. And when the Lord says, Fill ye up then the measure of your fathers. That's all almost equivalent to what the Lord would say a little later, a few days, to Judas Iscariot. That ye do, do quickly. Fill ye up then the measure of your fathers. It was no longer possible for them to escape. They were confirmed in obstinate impenitence. Securing the most awful thing there is. To die in sin. To die is not the worst thing there is. To die in sin is the worst thing there is. And all who will not have Christ, believing him that he is who he says and declares himself to be the Son of God, he alone who can save from sin, from death, from hell, those who will not have him to reign as Lord over them, they cannot escape the damnation of hell impossible but there's something worse preacher what could be worse than the damnation of hell what's involved in it there's something worse to die in sin is to be eternally separated from Christ the light, the joy. If you die in your sins, he says to some in John chapter 8, where I am, 
there you cannot come. To be without Christ and only those who know him can begin to understand the horror of that statement. To be without him, without the light. To be in eternal darkness. To be shut up to self. The conscience. Forever and ever. Only one who truly knows him. Only one who has really tasted of his goodness. That drawn from his redeeming love from the cross. Beholding him as the light of life. Could begin possibly to have a sense of the horror. Of being forever separated from him. So we're taught in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 by the Apostle Paul that when he comes, we'll be glorified in all of his own, all who believe, all his sheep, all whom he redeemed and brought by his grace to himself. That when judgment comes, it will be from his presence. Punished with everlasting punishment from the presence of the Lord. That's a direct quote from Scripture. That's horrific. Oh, that some would become broken over sin. The work only God can produce in one. Acknowledge the justice that judges sin against God. To whom we owe everything. And that sin against God is the worst evil there is. And oh, that he would draw some to seek him with a contrite and a broken heart. Crying for mercy before it's too late. What a solemn thing to consider. Soon the Lord will lament in verse 37 how often he would have gathered them. The soon lament of that verse is in light of the final call and prophecy of the destruction of the city and temple that would come. In verses 32 through 36. Fill ye up then the measure of your fathers, ye serpents, ye generation of vipers. How can you escape the damnation of hell? Wherefore, behold, I send unto you prophets and wise men and scribes, and some of them ye shall kill and crucify, and some of them shall you scourge in your synagogues and persecute them, uh, them from city to city. But upon you may come all the righteous blood shed upon the earth, from the blood of righteous Abel unto the blood of Zacharias, son of Barachias, whom you slew between the temple 
and the altar. Verily I say unto you, all these things shall come upon this generation. The two important things about this final call. First, this call that comes in finality is not the call of Christ personally with them, as now. It's the preaching that would continue for 40 years after the death, resurrection, and ascension of Christ. The preaching of repentance from sin and faith in Christ to that nation for 40 more years before the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. After they crucify the Lord of glory, after his resurrection and ascension, he will send unto them prophets, wise men, and scribes. We have the scribe right here, one of them, in Matthew. The problem is they won't receive any better pre uh, treatment than did he. In essence, he will be continued to be persecuted in his preaching ambassadors who shall take the word of God even to the Jewish nation. I don't think we should look at these prophets and wise men and scribes as being three different men here, but rather three aspects of the messengers that God would send forth during that period before the destruction would come, before the judgment would come. God is long-suffering. It's incredible. So in Luke's corresponding passage, he doesn't have prophets and wise men and scribes. He has prophets and apostles, those who would bring the word of God, make the truth known, and apostles. So likely speaking of the same ones. Then, as in God's order, God has an order. That order is the Jew first, then the Gentile. God would send forth the gospel. Even after they crucified the Lord of glory 40 years to that nation. But there would come the time when as the Apostle Paul at uh, Antioch in Pisidia, that's what I was trying to think about before, as he preached in Antioch at Pisidia, the word of God should first, must have first been spoken to you. That's God's order. But seeing you put it from you and judge yourselves, of un, uh, 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 and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, we turn to the Gentiles. Did Paul do that delightfully? No. 
you write in Romans 9, I say the truth in Christ. I lie not. My conscience bear me witness in the Holy Ghost that I could wish myself accursed from Christ for my brethren according to the flesh. He was broken. But the order of God had taken place. And we turn to the Gentiles. Then, secondly, and incredibly important in the passage, the Lord Jesus says, I send unto you. What's important about that? What's important when he says, I send unto you prophets and apostles, wise men. He's using the same language Jehovah uses in the Old Testament. The very same language as has been said. None but the king of kings could thus speak without blasphemy. And so we believe that when the Lord Jesus Christ laments over Jerusalem, how often I would gather you together, you would not, in verse 37. But I believe that reaches all the way back to Old Testament times. Not only when he is bodily present with them. This is the language of Jehovah. What happened in the Old Testament? Second Chronicles chapter 36. I'll read it for you if you have a hard time finding it quick enough. Second Chronicles chapter 36. And verses 15 and 16. And the Lord God of their fathers, that's Jehovah, God of their fathers, sent to them by his messengers, rising up betimes and sending, because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. Now we're going to deal with this somewhat when we get to verse 37 next week. But the absolute sovereignty of God that he chooses and saves whom he will, he does, does not negate the heart that's made known. And we're going to be dealing with that a little bit. He kept sending them. The Lord Jesus says, how often I would have. You would not. We'll have to deal with that. Being Calvinist, correct? <laughs> Next week. Very important. The one does not rule out the other. But they mock the messengers of God and despised his words and misused his prophets until the wrath of the Lord arose against his people till there was no remedy. God makes known he is long-suffering. And no marvel then. After the death, resurrection, ascension of the Lord Jesus, 40 years, the gospel goes. Still, to the Jewish nation before that horrendous destruction we're going to be studying about in chapter 24 comes about. When 
he says, I send unto you. It's the clearest implications he is Jehovah. Jehovah incarnate. The awful, indescribable destruction of Jerusalem that would come in 70 A.D. after 40 years of calling them to repentance. After the persecuting of some of the Lord's emissaries, some to death. After filling up the measure of their iniquity, They would be without any excuse, none whatsoever. Wherefore, behold, I send unto you prophets and wise men and scribes, and some of them you shall kill and crucify, and some of them shall you scourge in your synagogues and persecute them from city to city, that upon you may come all the righteous blood shed upon the earth from the blood of righteous Abel unto the blood of Zacharias, son of Barachias, whom you slew between the temple and the altar. Verily I say unto you, all these things shall come upon this generation. That generation. That generation. The very generation to whom the Lord Jesus came personally. Fulfilling the law and the prophets. Infallibly shown to be the promised Messiah. The incarnate son of the living God. Would be rejected. And killed. And the messenger sent by him in his resurrection glory would be treated with contempt, rejection, persecution, and some killed. You see, it was fully revealed that they did fill up the measure of their fathers. Never again Never again, in any sense, would the Jewish people as a nation be the special people of God. That was over. And it would be over forever. That very generation, that very generation would experience the awful judgment described in the next chapter. In the Olivet Discourse. All these things shall come upon this generation. Linking that together in chapter 24 and verse 24. I think that, no, verse 34, pardon me. Verily I say unto you, this generation, this generation, same one, this generation, shall not pass till all these things are fulfilled. Yet you want to know something wondrous about God and his incredible mercy and grace? Even in that generation, 
even to the end of the world, though national Israel would never again be the people of God. That was over. That covenant was broken. It was passed forever. Yet in the incredible sovereign grace of God, many individual Jews, he still saves. Many. Be quite a multitude by the time it's all over. In Romans 9, verses 6 through 8, the Apostle Paul, They are not all Israel which are of Israel, neither because they are the children of Israel are they all children, but in Isaac shall thy seed be called, that is, they which are the children of the flesh. These are not the children of God, but the children of the promise shall be counted for the seed. And Paul, as if emphasizing this in a great way, we're not to think that God's through with the Jews. He's not. Even so then, even so at this present time, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. He writes in Romans 11 and verse 5. Do you want to know something else? You and I are no better than they. You and I are no better than they who crucified the Lord of glory. Paul, of course, also writes that in Romans, doesn't he? In Romans 3. What then? Are we better than they? No, no wise. For we before proved both Jews and Gentiles that they're all under sin. As it's written, there's none righteous. No, not one. There's none that understandeth. There's none that seeketh after God. They're all gone out of the way. He draws that from the Psalms. And like I said before, we're born into this world, we become rebels, self-seeking, vile in our desires, rebellious against authority, parents, or guardians, immediately that comes out quickly. One our own way, vile, sinful. Is that hard to take? We're not born innocent, we're born sinners. Capable of the most horrendous sins you can imagine. Now, this trial in Georgia, Murdoch, that helps me. He had everything. He had it all, as far as the world would be concerned. It was incredible. Incredible, the family he came from, the influence his family had, the education he possessed. He had it all. But now look at him. Those who are favored with the highest of blessings it would seem in this world are capable of the most horrendous things you can imagine. So were we. So were we. And yet the Lord comes along with a glorious gospel. He makes known that that cross of his son, the cross of his son Jesus Christ, he's placed between him and us to move all out of the way the sin that separated us from him. That we might come to know him. 
By his grace, he draws our sight to Jesus Christ and him crucified. He says, look at me. Don't look to yourselves. Look to me. Trust me. The sinner's substitute. The Lamb of God slain for sinners. Look to me. Believe on me. Come to me. By the cross. By the preaching of Jesus Christ and him crucified. By the hearing of the gospel that declares that he is the Lamb of God slain for sinners. Believing. Coming to him. Trusting him. We are drawn to him. Are saved by the very same grace that saved those believing Jews that were the elect remnant. And we got in the same way because he chose us to get there. And we don't have any place to glory but in him. And in him only. The marvel then is not the devastating judgment that came to the Jewish nation. And read Josephus sometime. Nor the awful judgment to come upon the world of ungodly sinners. You know what the marvel is? I marvel at it. I marvel that he would save a sinner like me. I marvel at it. Otherwise I should have been as vile and wicked as anybody else. Yeah, Brother Newton. Amazing grace. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Move over, Brother Newton. I have the same sentiment. No, the marvel is not the judgment of God. The marvel is not that we suffer in this world. The marvel is an incredible mercy. An incredible mercy in saving sinners. That God would love enough to send his son to die for sinners. What a glorious gospel. What a glorious gospel. And then to find out God's going to save a vast multitude from both the, uh, the Jews and from the Gentiles. Make them one people forever. One holy nation. That God would save this vast multitude out of both the Jewish people and Gentiles. Out of this God-rejecting and fallen world is amazing. And so since Bob is not here today, and I wish he could be, we're going to sing his song. Amazing Grace.